And tonight we're looking at a sound and upright heart versus a deceived heart. And I will abbreviate my message a little bit. I took the extra time to show you the video and I wanted you to get to see that. So I'll, I will adjust accordingly. But back to our verses in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Bible teaches us that we are to have a sound and an upright heart versus a deceived heart. Now let me just say this before we start. As we've been talking about these different types of hearts, the key to our living for the Lord and serving the Lord is the heart. And you can have everything else right but not have the heart right and you're in trouble. Amen? Man looketh upon the outward appearance but God looketh on the heart. God knows what's in your heart. God knows what's in my heart. And by the way, and I was talking about some, to somebody about this this morning, the difference in ministry, the difference between performing and ministering is the attitude of your heart. When our people play the various musical instruments and when the choir sings and the special music sings and all the different things that we do, it's one thing to stand and perform, it's another thing to stand and minister. And the difference is what's in here. Why you're doing it. Are we doing it to serve the Lord and to please the Lord or am I just going through the motions? And so make sure your heart is right. And that's what God wants us to do and that's what we've been focusing on these different types of heart. A sound and upright heart. Back in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy verse 14, chapter 2 verse 14, of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. God says there's some things we shouldn't even talk about. Profane and vain babblings. He says they'll, they'll increase to more ungodliness. And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrown the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God, what's the next two words? Standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So as we think about a sound and an upright heart versus a deceived heart, first of all, let's look at the purpose of a sound and an upright heart. Why do we want to have a sound heart, an upright heart, a godly heart? There's several things. First of all, the purpose of this heart is to experience the physical and the psychological and the spiritual benefits of knowing and living by God's truth. Notice that, knowing and living by God's truth. If we're going to have the right kind of heart, a sound and upright heart, we've got to know the Word of God. We've got to know the truths of God and live by that truth. David's prayer in Psalm 119 and verse 80 was that God would let his heart be sound in thy statues that I might not be ashamed. He said, I want my heart to be sound, to be solid, to be grounded in the Word of God. Solomon said in Proverbs 14, verse 30, he said, A sound heart is the life of the flesh. A sound heart. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2, we read in verse 15, Paul affirms that if we're going to have, if we are sound in our doctrine, 
We'll know how to rightly divide the word of truth and we will not be ashamed. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We should study God's word and know the truth and rightly divide the word of God. There's a lot of people that are wrongly dividing and wrongly teaching. There's a lot of false teachers and false doctrine. And the way to, to stop that and the way to deal with that is by being grounded in the Word of God. So we want to have a heart that experiences the physical, the psychological, the spiritual benefits of knowing and living God's truth. Secondly, what is the definition? What does it mean to have a sound and upright heart? What does that say? What does that look like? First of all, in the same way that a perfect heart we talked about earlier relates to worship, a sound heart relates to our beliefs, what we believe. If we believe right, based on the Word of God, we have sound doctrine, then we have a sound heart. Secondly, the lack of a perfect heart will produce the lack of a sound heart. Since a man's morality dictates his theology and his philosophy. I've said this oftentimes, a man's morality will dictate his theology. If a man is not right morally, he will not be right theologically. And that's why it's important that a, that a person who preaches and teaches the Word of God lives morally pure and lives for God and serves God. Now, some people get upset with me for saying this, but I'm going to say it all anyway. Uh, one of the reasons I never had much confidence in Peter Ruckman was because he was not sound in his morality and therefore it affected his theology. And so we have to be careful about that. You get into the various false religions and false cults, and there are many people that are, were unsound in the morality, and it affected their theology. And so we have to be on guard and be careful. The Hebrew word for sound in Psalm 119 verse 80 means entire, without spot or blemish, complete, undefiled. That sounds like a pretty good heart, a sound heart to have. An upright heart has a, has a literal and a figurative relationship to a person's health. The more upright a human heart is, in the cavity of his chest, the healthier a person is. At least that's what they tell us. The more it leans to one side, the more unhealthy the person's heart is. The Hebrew word for upright means just, righteous, equity. So God wants us to have an upright heart, and it's kind of pictured by the physical heart, but our heart is to be upright, it's to be right, it's to be going in the right direction, doing the right things. God wants us to have an upright heart. How do we have a sound and upright heart? How do we get that kind of a heart? Well, there's several things. First of all, know the basic doctrines of the faith. Know what the Bible teaches. If we are grounded in the truth of the Word of God, we'll have a sound heart. And I'm going to look at seven doctrines of the faith that have been affirmed throughout history as foundational. And I'm not going to go through all of the references that you have there. You can look them up on your own. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to mention them and make a few comments on them. But if you get these seven things down, you're going to have a good foundation for a sound heart. The first one is the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe, obviously, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He was born of Mary. She was not with a man. That which was conceived in her, the Bible says, was of the Holy Ghost. And because 
she was born, because Jesus was born without a man being involved, he was born without a sinful nature like we have. Romans 5.12 says, As by one man, that was Adam, sin entered into the world, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That sin nature from Adam is passed down through the man. It's passed from Adam to his sons to the next sons, and the daughters too, by the way, but it's passed through the man. And so, Jesus did not have a man involved in his birth. He was born of a virgin. He was born sinless. And therefore, he qualifies to be the Savior. You see, if Jesus was not virgin born, he does not qualify to be our Savior. And so we must believe in the virgin birth of Christ. Secondly, the deity of Christ. The deity of Jesus Christ. What do we mean by that? And by the way, sometimes if you're like me, I have trouble sometimes spelling words. And, I, and, and the best way to remember how to spell deity is Jesus Christ, He died on the cross, but He lives forever. Amen? He's everlasting. So it's not the deity of Christ, it's the deity of Christ. That'll help you to spell it right. You don't spell deity. It's the deity. That simply means this. Jesus is God. Amen? He's God. Jesus is just as much God as God the Father. He's just as much God as the God the Holy Spirit. We believe in God, who is three persons in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ is God. One of the things that, that particularly Mormons, not Mormons, um, the Muslims particularly try to, they try to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, it doesn't take long, and I don't have time to go into all the verses, but it doesn't take long to find that Jesus did claim to be God. And because of that, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to take away his life and, and, and uh, put him to death. Jesus is God. And unless you believe that Jesus is God, you're not saved. John 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 13 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. He is the Word. He's the, the living Word. And He is God. So we must believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ if we're going to be sound in our doctrine. Any religion that does not believe that Jesus is God is a false religion. The Jehovah's Witnesses, in their, in their New International Version of their Bible, it says in John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. We don't believe the Word was a God, amen? The Word was God. He is God. And we believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what does that mean? That means Jesus became my substitute and your substitute when he died on the cross. The songwriter said, I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and bled and died, but Jesus, God's son, took my place. Jesus was my substitute. He was your substitute. We should have been nailed onto that cross. Amen? It was our sin that he was paying for. But thank God he took my place and he took your place. Amen? If we're going to be sound, we must believe in the substitutionary atonement. And then thirdly, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe Jesus rose from the dead in a body. They saw Jesus after he arose. He even said to, to Thomas, reach hither your finger and place it in my hand, in your hand and place it in my side. They saw him. 
When he was there on the shores of Galilee, he ate fish and, and, and I think honey there with them. And, and he had a body like we do. And they recognized him and they knew who he was. When we get to heaven, we'll have a resurrected body. It'll be like the resurrected body of Jesus. I don't know everything about that, but I know it'll be, it will be a body that's recognizable. We'll recognize each other when we get to heaven, just like they rec recognize Jesus. But he rose in a body. Did you ever think about this? Jesus became man. He, he stepped down from heaven and took on the form of a man for eternity. He died, he was buried, he rose again, but he's still the God-man. Amen? Why did he do that? Well, a number of reasons, but one is so that he could identify with us and we could identify with him. He became man so that we, God, became man so men could become the sons of God. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Now, it's not like the Mormon church teaches. The Mormon church teaches that here's God, here, here, here's God, Jesus. They don't believe Jesus is God, by the way. The Mormon church, or the, the Muslims teach that, or the Mormon church, the Mormon church pleads Jesus and Satan were brothers. And, and I was talking to a man recently who was involved in the Mormon church, and I, I asked him, I said, how can you believe in a religion believes Jesus and Satan are brothers when the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's not possible. Amen. He gave his only begotten son. So anyway, we believe in the bodily resurrection. Jesus became man. He died. He was buried. He rose again from the dead in a bodily form. Not just in a spirit, in a bodily form. They saw him. And one day we'll see him. We go to heaven. And then number five, the second coming of Christ. Jesus is coming back again. Now remember, there are two things that are involved in here. When Jesus comes back for the church, the believers, and we're caught up together, what's that called? What do you call it? The rapture. The rapture means caught up. The second coming is when seven years later he comes to the, this earth and he sets up his kingdom and he'll rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. So he's coming back in the air for the saved, but then he's coming back to the earth and he'll set up his kingdom. When the Lord gave what we call the, the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, he said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next phrase? Thy kingdom come. We're praying for him to come back to earth and set up his kingdom. And that's going to happen one of these days. We believe if we are sound in our doctrine and have a sound heart and a sound mind, we must believe in the second coming of Christ. And then the inspiration of Scripture. We believe that this book we hold in our hands is the inspired Word of God. The word inspired means God breathed. God literally breathed into this book His words. Remember... In Genesis, when God made man, he took man, he formed him out of the dust of the earth, and he breathed into him the breath of life. God did the same thing when he gave us his word. He breathed the breath of life. He breathed into men the words and what he wanted written down, and they recorded for us the very words of God himself. Say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says, forever, O God, Thy word is settled in heaven. God's word has been settled in heaven forever. That means that before time ever began, there was already a copy of the word of God in heaven. 
And God used men to put that down in, on paper so that you and I can have it and can read it. And I'm so glad we have the Bible in our language so that we can read it today. I saw a little, saw a, a clip somebody put on there about, I can't even remember who it was, just, just the other day. Something about, I said, there's somebody on the internet that is, that is uh, refuting that King James wrote the King James Bible. I said, well, no kidding. King James didn't write the King James Bible. There was a lot of people that were involved in, in writing the Word of God for us, but there was a whole group of men that were involved in translating it. King James put his, uh, his stamp of approval on it, but King James didn't write it. Amen. That's not very hard to figure out. But isn't it interesting how people will attack the Word of God? Two things that ought to be uniting us as believers is the Bible and our music. And the devil fights those the hardest. He fights the Word of God and he fights our music. And he constantly is attacking. And so if we are to be sound in our doctrine and have a sound heart and a sound mind, we must believe in the inspiration of the Word of God. All Scripture has been given by inspiration of God is profitable for, for doctrine, for reproof, for, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. The inspired Word of God. And then seventhly, we, seventh, we believe in the everlasting blessedness of the saved and the everlasting punishment of the lost. What do you mean by that? The saved are going to get to go to heaven and be blessed with the Lord for all of eternity. When Jesus comes back for us at the rapture, we're caught up together to be with Him. And the end of that passage says, So shall we ever be with the Lord. Aren't you glad one of these days we're going to get to be with Him forever? Amen? But for the lost person, the Bible says that Satan, the devil, the false prophet, the Antichrist, the beast, they're all going to be cast into the lake of fire. And it says this, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and forever. The lost person will forever experience everlasting punishment. I got to thinking one time about the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And you know the story, the rich man had his blessings and wealth and so forth in lifetime. And, and when they died, he was in hell. He lifted up his eyes being in torment, the Bible says. Lazarus was in heaven, or he was in Abraham's bosom. And there's a whole lot I could say about that right now. But just to simply say this. He had blessings. The rich man who died and went to hell had torment forever and ever. And... He said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, he said, those that are here with us cannot come to you, and those that are there cannot come to us. He said, there's a great gulf fixed between us. Once a person dies, they are either in heaven or hell. And there's no getting out of the one and into the other, or out of the one and into the other. It's permanent for eternity. Now we understand when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says he descended and then he took captivity captive. In the Old Testament, when a person died, if he was saved, he went to Abraham's bosom. If he was lost, he went to, to hell. And there was a great gulf fix between the two. They evidently could see each other. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing to have to live forever and see your loved ones in torment that weren't saved? But when Jesus died, he descended, he took captivity.
captivity captive. He took all of those souls in Abraham's bosom and he took them to heaven with him. And they are with him in heaven now. They're not in Abraham's bosom. They are in heaven with the Lord. And when Jesus comes back at the rapture, he's going to bring them with him in the air. And the Bible says we'll be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. We'll get to be together with the Lord for eternity. Thank God I'm saved and I'm going to enjoy everlasting blessedness, not everlasting punishment. And then letter B in your notes there, realize that sound doctrine, don't miss this, is destroyed by ungodly living. Sound doctrine is destroyed by ungodly living. We can have all the right doctrine, but if we don't live it, we destroy it as far as people are concerned. They watch our life, they see how we live, and they say, hey, you're not, not any different than I am if you live in an ungodly life. 2 Timothy 4 verse 3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. In 1 Timothy 1 verses 9 and 10, he says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient. For them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Anything contrary to sound doctrine, we destroy sound doctrine by ungodly living. Let me leave you with some questions as we finish tonight. What study references do you have to accurately apply Scripture? The Bible teaches us to study the Word of God. I'm thankful that there are many tools that we have that we can use to help us to study God's Word. I'm grateful that I've, I've got a library. I don't know how many, probably thousands of books in my library. Vicki keeps accusing me of having getting more and more books. but I, I, And I, I read some online, and, and I mean on, on my yeah, online or on the, on the iPad and, and phone and so forth. I do, but I'm still old school enough. I like to underline and highlight and, and hold a copy of it in my hands. And, and so I have a lot of books. But I'm glad I have books that I can read. Now, there's some of them. I have a couple of books that I put a, a skull and a crossbones on the binder of it because it's not one that I want to I learn from. And I get rid of those kind of books. But sometimes as you study the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God will give you discernment. And if you'll study and compare it with God's Word, I hear, I hear people sometimes, and sometimes even preachers, they say, well, all I do is I just take the Bible. I just take the Word of God. That's all I do, and that's all I need to study. Well, praise the Lord for that. I'm thankful for that. But I'll be honest with you, I need help. Amen. I use a lot of things to help me. For one, one thing, I look up words. What is this word? There, there's sometimes words that are translated into our English language and, and it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing that it did in the Greek and the Hebrew. I don't speak Greek. I don't speak Hebrew. So I've got to have some help. Okay? I know a little Greek and I know a little Hebrew. I know a little Greek. He runs a restaurant downtown. I know a little Hebrew and he has a laundromat. So uh, I know a little bit. But I use help. And you can. There are good men who have written good Bible study helps and they can be a great blessing to you. What kind of Bible study references did you have that will help you to accurately apply the Word of God? Secondly, why must doctrine be learned in the context of moral principles? 
We have to learn it in the context of moral principles because our mor morality will affect our theology. You see, and, and, and for years there have been the debates over divorce and remarriage and and there have been debates over whether a, a pastor has to be the husband of one wife and all those sorts of things. And I just say this, I'm not debating that tonight, but just to say that your morality, where you fit in those, affects your theology. And it should be that the Word of God affects our morality. Amen? In other words, we don't need our life to change the Bible, we need the Bible to change our life. And to be like the Lord. And then thirdly, what false teachers do you know whose morality dictated their theology. False teachers. I, uh, one of the first one comes to my mind, I've been, I was talking about the, the, the uh, Mormons, jo Joseph Smith. His, his uh, morality certainly dictated his theology, didn't it? And then last, are you committed to having a sound and an upright heart? Do we want to have a sound and an upright heart, or are we being deceived? Do we have a deceived heart? We don't want to let the world, and we don't want to let the, the morality of the world change our mind. You know, all this last month, and I, I'll be honest with you, I'm glad June is over. I was a little bit sick of all the pride stuff we saw. Amen? Amen. But there are people who will search for verses in the Bible and try to justify their homosexuality and their immorality by verses in the Bible and twist them around and make them say something that, that is not scriptural or not founded in God's Word. And unfortunately, not only in that area, in a lot of other areas, people twist the Word of God to make it say whatever they want to. You remember when Judas betrayed the Lord. He came back and he threw the money down and he went out and did what? Hung himself. Went out and hung himself, took his life. Did you know, I could quote that verse and say he went out and hung himself. And there's another verse in the Bible that says, Go and do thou likewise. Now if I put those two verses together, I'm a false teacher, right? But I'm still using the Word of God. And that's exactly what many people do. They take one verse here and one verse here, take it out of context, try to fit it all together in an improper way and teach false doctrine and false religion. Most false religions have enough of the Bible in there. It's sort of like the bait on the hook that catches you and then they put all their false doctrine along with it. There's enough truth to make it believable and then add all the false doctrine to it. And so we have to be careful that we have a sound and an upright heart. And then we will not have a deceived heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Help us to have a sound heart. An upright heart. And Lord, help us not to be deceived. It's so easy in our world. Satan is a deceiver. He's a master deceiver. He deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he's still deceiving people today. He got her to question your word. And people are still trying to get us to question the word of God. Thank you for the many times that your word just simply says, Thus saith the Lord. Or this is the word of God. How we thank you for it. May you help us, Lord, to have a, an upright heart, a sound heart, and not be deceived. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.